Why is it always about money? Welcome to The Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. In this episode, we discuss money, greenbacks, moolah, the Benjamins, bread, coin, dough, dead presidents, jack, lettuce, loot, bucks, and scratch. <laughs> you sound like George Carlin. That's kind of what I was going for, Steve. I love George Carlin. Oh, man. Oh, how, oh. Much, how much do we miss him and need him right now? Do we ever? Oh, my God. Anyway, we're going to play for you another interview we conducted with Dr. Jamie Arndt a few years ago. Dr. Arndt is a professor and chair of the Department of Psychological Sciences at University of Missouri. Here's the interview with Dr. Arndt. Uh, we're very glad to have back with us Jamie Arndt. He is an assistant professor of social psychology in the Department of Psychological Studies at the University of Missouri. Dr. Arndt has published 35 articles that examine touch such topics as how the fear of death influences creativity, self-esteem, aggression, legal judgments, unconscious processes, material pursuits, and health behaviors. Welcome, Dr. Arndt. Thanks for visiting us once again. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me back. Thank you. Uh, Jamie, we asked you last time if you would review the basic ideas of Ernest Becker and sort of give us a quick walkthrough of terror management theory and what you guys are working on in your research. Would you mind doing that again for us? Sure, sure. Becker was concerned with the implications of a creature such as ourselves, who's both motivated to survive, but at the same time cognitively advanced enough to realize that we exist and consequently to realize that inevitably we will not exist. That is, we're aware of our own ultimate mortality. And so you juxtapose these two facets of our being, this awareness of our own mortality and a predilection for living rather than dying, the two combine to create a potential for a tremendous amount of anxiety or terror, as Becker referred to it. And then the issue is, well, if we've got this, if you accept this, if we've got all this potential for anxiety, uh, why aren't we twitching, huddled in a, in, a, in a corner, groping for a volume the size of a Buick? Presumably, we're then managing or controlling this anxiety. And Becker suggested that we do so largely by investing in cultural beliefs, beliefs that provide us with a sense of meaning, with, provide us with a sense of purpose, a sense of order, with the possibility of being ourselves heroic and thereby attaining some kind of literal or symbolic form of immortality. Terror management theory? Terror management theory uh, is a perspective proposed by Jeff Greenberg, Tom Pazinski, and Sheldon Solomon that represents an effort to take aspects of Becker's analysis and subject them to some empirical scrutiny to assess whether or not they hold any scientific merit by exposing them to the rigors of scientific tests, as it were. So one of the things that you can take from Becker's ideas is the notion that if our identification with things like culture, if our pursuit of self-esteem and feeling valuable or feeling heroic if that protects us from the anxieties associated with our own mortality, then it follows that if you heighten concern with mortality or do what's called make mortality salient, it's a jargony term that, that we use, make people think about their death, then you should observe uh, increased efforts to defend those cultural systems or increased efforts to maintain self-esteem or live up to a feeling of being valuable. 
So this is a basic hypothesis that has guided a range of studies at this point to examine this notion by essentially reminding people, either consciously or unconsciously, of their death, perhaps giving them a questionnaire to fill out that asks them to briefly reflect on their own death, perhaps interviewing them in close proximity to a funeral parlor or a graveyard, or using sort of computer methodologies to get the word death or the idea of death into their head without their conscious awareness, uh, using any of these variety of techniques to activate such concerns. Other groups of subjects, what we call our control conditions, wouldn't be exposed to these sorts of thoughts, these sorts of concerns. And then later measuring their behavior in this regard, their, their defense or their identification, their affiliation with these cultural and symbolic beliefs. And one of the things that we've now found in just a, a wide number of studies is that when you remind people of death, either consciously or unconsciously, you see these increased identification with their cultural belief, increased defense of those beliefs, increased efforts to do that which leads me to feel valuable about myself. Can you give us an example of a, a study that brought out some of these, these ideas? Well, one of the first studies that was done brought Christian subjects into the laboratory, and they reminded Christian subjects of their own death or not using an uh, open-ended questionnaire, and then later had them evaluate two other targets two other people who were purportedly in the study. These were fictitious people, uh, unbeknownst to the research participant. And the people that they evaluated, they, they were given a, a series of basic overview of the person's likes and dislikes, their basic personality. And they were very similar, except one of the, the targets was the child of Christian parents, and the other target was of Jewish descent. And that was the only difference between the two. So what we're looking at here is, or rather what Jeff Greenberg and his colleagues were looking at here, was how does reminding subjects of their mortality affect how they evaluate these two different people, one being a Christian and one being a Jewish person. And what they found is that after being reminded of their death relative to being reminded of some other aversive topic, people became much more positive towards the fellow Christian, that, one, that person who presumably upheld the belief system, and much more negative towards the Jewish person, that individual who presumably undermined or threatened the belief system by espousing or at least identifying with a different system of beliefs. So that's, that's sort of a, one example of a study that's been replicated by a number of different researchers, both across, in the United States and in a variety of other countries. Not something that we would think is unique to Christians per se. I just use that as one, one example, but a finding that's, that's been evidenced with a variety of different types of populations. Well, Jamie, as you know, our show looks at Ernest Becker's theories and, and looks at a lot of different cultural issues. Mm -hmm. This show here is about money. So I'm going to ask you this question straight out. What is money? That's, that's, the, that's the big dollar question. <laughs> <laughs> it depends what perspective you want to take. You know, money is a physical piece of paper or it's a piece of copper. Uh, economists would, would argue that, that money is a rational medium of exchange. But I think you can also look at money with the psychological dimension, with money being a very, very powerful symbol of prestige, a very, very powerful symbol of, well, power, <laughs> as it were. And it's, it's a symbol that we often tend to overlook. We don't necessarily think of money in this fashion. We think of it rather. Money is that which enables me to get a new car. Money is that which enables me to go out and get a nice meal or a bottle of wine. But money is also much more 
than that. And it's very much tied into the symbolic power of money and what that conveys. And this is something that uh, Joseph Campbell points out quite poignantly when he asks us to look at the back of a dollar bill. And it just so happens I have one here. And if you, yeah, can, can you believe that? I, this is unfortunately the only particular bill I have, no <laughs> 20s or 50s, but, but ones. Benjamins. Uh, yeah, the Benjamins, yeah. Uh, the Georges. Um, and if you look at the back of the dollar bill, I think you see some very interesting things. Uh, you don't necessarily see the declarative separation between church and state on which this, this country was founded. And very clearly, rather, you see, in God we trust. I see the word God on there. Right there. And that's actually something I was just reading about earlier that's becoming into the, to the media as people are now debating the Pledge of Allegiance. And should God be in the Pledge of Allegiance? Well, we see God on our legal tender, giving it perhaps part of its power. If you look on the side of a dollar bill, you see a pyramid, which is an interesting object to have on a dollar bill. We don't, we don't have any pyramids here, here. Uh, in this no. country. And it's got that scary eye at the it's top the of the pyramid. It's the disemboweled eye. the most unbelievable mm-hmm. symbol to put on an American anything. This, yeah. this pyramid with, a, with an eye coming out of the top of it. It's amazing. Yeah, Joseph Campbell would suggest that that is quite literally the enlightened, you can see that it's enlightened, the enlightened eye of God, which, which opens to us when we reach the top of the pyramid, when we reach the top of this, well, immortality symbol. The pyramid is an immortality symbol. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So how does this tie into our feelings of self-esteem, self-worth? Money is king. What are you, why do we value it so much? There's a lot of reasons why. I think, you know, of course, we value money. We value money because money can get you cool stuff. Well, that's the rational part. That's the rational part, right. but it goes much beyond that, I think, because also what, what does money communicate to us? It tells us not just how much our car is worth, but how much we are worth as the person who holds the keys. And so it becomes in this way a reflection of our sense of symbolic value. So in the same way that we value money because it can buy stuff, it can buy stuff also because we put some, so much value into it. That was Brown, wasn't it? Was that, was that was Brown, also uh, Giza yeah. Roheim, an uh, anthropologist okay. in the uh-huh. 40s, right. said something, probably said it more eloquently, but something <laughs> to that effect. Right, right. How does it tie into our response to death anxiety? In other words, you know, how does it help us overcome our existential fears, our, our right. anxieties. Well, when you think about what our research has shown, what the terror management research has shown, it's shown that when, when you activate these concerns of mortality, you're heightening efforts to maintain self-esteem. Presumably what we're doing is activating concerns that are always there. The, as William James liked to refer to it, the skull that grins in at the banquet that specter of death that, that does loom over us. But we can heighten it, and we can then observe these efforts to maintain self-esteem. So now you step back and you say, okay, well, how do people maintain self-esteem in this country? What makes people feel valuable? Well, what makes people often feel valuable is having the Armani suit, is having the designer dress and the, the nice car, the Cadillac or the, the Porsche or the Ferrari, whatever kind of vehicle that I don't drive. Uh, we're talking about... Us either. Yeah. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. Yeah. yeah. Okay. When we have these, these symbolic reflections that says, look, I've made it in this world. I've attained a significant amount of material success. 
that makes us, and that conveys in this culture at least, that we're people of value, that we're special. And so to the extent that that gives us a reflection uh, in which we can feel good about ourselves, and to the extent that feeling good about ourselves provides protection from deeply rooted existential fears, then we can understand this urge to splurge, this press for materialistic desire as a response in part to efforts to manage these deeply rooted concerns about death and vulnerability. We were reading one of your papers recently, and I was stricken by the phrase, dressed to kill. People always use that phrase, dressed to kill, and it's really ironic in this context, isn't it? It is. It is an ironic phrase. It would be a fascinating phrase in which one is, you know, spiffed up, dressed to the nines, looking good, uh, reflecting some degree of cultural success, and perhaps tying it back into Becker as he does with the hero's triumph over death. You're dressed to kill. You now have the power over life and death. And looking uh, better than the other person. Absolutely. I mean, the implication is dressed to kill. is like, I'm looking like this. You're looking like that. I'm better I than win. you. That's right. That's right. And that's a powerful psychological reaction. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, much of the way that we often maintain self-esteem is not just by our own glories and our own kudos, but at doing those at the expense of others. So I can be up here, and that can make me feel particularly good if you're down there. And if I'm dressed to the nines and you're not, well, then I, I'm better than you. How does terror management theory help us then to understand this materialism, this what Kirby Farrell referred to as consumer utopia that we find mm -hmm. ourselves in? What does is, what is terror management theory do to, to help us understand this a little better? Well, one of the things that it suggests is that to the extent that this consumeristic utopia, these messages of mass consumption and materialism, to the extent that they become integrated at the individual level, the individual well, buys into them, as it were, as a means to attain self-esteem, we can then understand, in part, people's very, very powerful drive to acquire more. I think of Mary Poppins, enough is as good as a feast. And unfortunately, that very sensible notion is not something that many Americans live by. We're, we're driven for more, and we can begin to understand why we're driven for more if we recognize that it's fulfilling a very powerful need that people have to feel good about themselves. It's a, it's a religion in, in a way. I mean, it takes the place of the religion that we seem to have, have lost or, uh, or abandoned, possibly. Yeah, the money, money has become the new yeah. immortality ideology was, of course, the notion of Norman Brown and Ernest Becker, where the Wall Street Journal is now the Bible and the uh -huh. shopping mall is now the temple. What are some of the unfortunate psychological consequences of setting your society up this way? Well, there, there can be a number of them. I, I think that, you know, one of the things that social psychological research has begun to suggest over the last 20 years or so, and this is research that comes from a variety of directions, not, not necessarily terror management ones, is that pursuing money at the expense, and I think this is a very, very critical point, it's not just pursuing money, but it's pursuing money at the expense of other more communally oriented or what people call self-determined, self-determined being that which reflects one's core being or, or inner desires, at the expense of these self-determined goals is often associated with lower health, lower well-being, lower basic psychological satisfaction. 
you know, money can't buy you love, as you guys noted, I thought very nicely, uh, according to the Beatles, and it also appears that it can't buy you happiness. More wealthy people are, statistically speaking, no more happy than people with less amounts of wealth. And there's even indications, as I was saying, that striving for that can result in lower health and lower well-being. There's a common theme, a film like Citizen Kane. I mean, that's, that's the message of, of mm-hmm. Citizen Kane, that mm-hmm. you, know, you can have this incredible fortune and you end up totally empty inside. Yeah. Yeah. Right, yeah. absolutely. This analysis, what we're suggesting, holds to the extent that that is part of your, as we like to refer to it, worldview, your value system. There are many elements of the American belief structure that espouse very you know, different uh, charitable types of values. And to the extent that that's the standard by which one sees a sense of meaning in the world, then we would expect management of these existential concerns to proceed along that kind of a trajectory. That is, we would expect to see people becoming more charitable, looking out for the next person. So it's not that it's all greed, it's all out for numero uno, but rather it's a question of we have these different values, and to the extent that we're oriented towards George, then that can lead to these unwanted psychological consequences. But we also have these other values, and if we are oriented towards those, we can experience different kinds of results. So are you talking then about an optimal value system? I mean, that's kind of a loaded or difficult question, but if the system that we've got isn't working, what should we be working toward? Yeah, that's a big one. And I think it's very, it's very, very difficult to evaluate one's own cultural system. And this is something that social constructionists have been talking about for, for, for uh, decades. It's very difficult to evaluate one's own cultural system without utilizing those same cultural values that you're now trying to evaluate. But Becker's work provides a way to begin to do so. And I, and I think it's a useful series of questions to ask that that get at the the point you're wondering about. And and that is to question, to what extent does a cultural system do a few things? To what extent does it provide for the psychological needs of its members? To what extent does it give those people in the culture a sense of meaning and the possibility for a sense of value? And to what extent does it do that while minimizing the costs for those outside the cultural system and for future generations. And that's obviously a very, very vital criterion to apply. We can look at Nazi Germany and say, well, it's telling you you're the best, you know, bag the rest. Tremendous meaning for those within the system, but of course, unfathomable consequence to those outside the meaning system. So if we apply that lens to American materialistic culture, you have to start to wonder about some things. You know, Americans enjoy some of the highest rates of depression across the world and other forms of mental illness. To what extent is everybody getting access to this as a viable system of meaning? What is the cost that we're introducing to future generations? Of course, we hear about the ozone and other various problems. In short, suggesting are we degrading the ecological viability of the planet and on which our survival depends? So we're stealing from the future to spend it to spend it now, now today. Yeah, but at the same time, I think we have to balance that with with a couple of notions. One is that we do have alternative elements to the belief systems that we subscribe to that lead towards different consequences, that lead towards norms of charitable behavior, norms of fairness, norms of equity, norms of restraint, and to the extent that we can make these norms more 
salient to people. One of the things we know from social psychological research is that attitudes and values influence behavior when they're salient, when people are thinking of them. If we make these things more salient to people, perhaps they have more of a guiding influence on our behavior. Perhaps they can gain self-esteem from something other than money, position. They can gain self-esteem from... Helping out the person next door. And it's interesting, uh, Eva Jonas is is a colleague of ours who's pioneered some very interesting studies that essentially try to do just that. And it's say, okay, listen, we can create conditions where we can show that people are going to be more materialistic. People are going to love the Lexus. They're going to love that Rolex. They're going to say, mine, mine, mine. But we can also create conditions when we make salient certain values, when we remind people of these other aspects and the importance of charitable behavior, where in one study they paid some research participants a few bucks, and then the participants turned around and handed the money to somebody else, actually gave up that money, presumably because they're now trying to maintain, as in the same fashion, a sense of meaning, a sense of value, but just through a different means. So what's being done to foster alternative belief systems? We were in a very capitalist place mm-hmm. here where it's all about the money, but I don't see... What can be done, if anything? These are, I know these are impossible questions these to answer, big, but we're yeah. here to ask, Sheldon Solomon said, we're here to ask the tough questions, and <laughs> that's the <laughs> and toughest to one we're going to duck the answers. And to duck the answers. Well, <laughs> right, you can yeah. try to duck it, but we're no. not letting you go. <laughs> no, I think, I mean, there are a number of things that we are doing, and perhaps they're not on the radar screen as markedly as they could be. But you do hear about wonderful charitable programs, educational campaigns, a variety of efforts to get people to focus on the importance of different types of values, community values, as it were. People trumpet that phrase a lot. Maybe they trumpet it too much to the point that it lacks the substance to give it some real impact. But to the extent that we can make efforts in that direction, and balance, I think, is a critical thing. And that's something that the the research I was describing earlier suggests. It's not just that pursuing monetary goals are bad. We have to consider what have these things given us, what medical, psychological, technological advances have resulted from people pursuing material profit, a a tremendous amount. So it's not all a bad thing, but it's then balancing those pursuits with other types of goals and values, pursuits that were perhaps previously tempered with a strong spiritual and religious conviction, which has perhaps waned over the years need to be replaced with that or similar types of communal convictions to promote that kind of a balance. What's the task of future research, of the social scientists, of this next generation of Becker-informed social scientists? Where's your research going now? Well, in this direction, I think that the work by Eva Jones is is one study that that I see is particularly exciting. That was a, a study in which she tried to examine how to promote different forms of fiscally or materialistically oriented behavior based on the norms that are salient. And I think there's a number of convergent ways to get at that. Research conducted by people like Richard Ryan and Edward Deasy from the University of Rochester, Tim Kasser from Knox College, Ken Sheldon from my own University of Missouri, is focused on covering the types of values that promote health and well-being and those often materialistic or extrinsic, i.e. those coming from without the culture saying, you must make this dollar, you must look like this, that undermine health and well-being. 
So the challenge is then to come up with understanding what are the beliefs that provide for our psychological needs. Uh, what are the beliefs that provide us with opportunities to feel like we're people of value, to feel a sense of security, because we need security. We need that to function, but at the same time giving us opportunities for growth. And hopefully through research we can get a better understanding of what those types of values are. But unfortunately, we're out of time once oh, again. The, it was my pleasure. Our, to be here. Uh, our thank guest you has very been much. Uh, Dr. Jamie Arndt from the University of Missouri. And thanks very much for coming out to see us and talking about oh, thanks money. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to an interview with Jamie Arndt talking about money and its place in our culture. So, Ken, what's your takeaway? Steve, I've always been struck by the notion that Jamie articulated so well that money is more than a rational means of exchange. Money has a lot of symbolic power. That's an important idea. And that's, that's tough for a lot of people to get because money is so central to everything that we do. Oh, yeah. That to take it away from that central practical idea and talk about it as a symbol of anything is a little bit of a stretch for some people, I think. Yeah, it's difficult, especially since a lot of people think of money 10 times a day. 10 times a minute. I've always been of two minds when people say they taught their children the value of money. I wonder what they were really teaching. Indeed. I mean, as Jamie put it, money tells us how much we're worth, right? Yep. You get your self-esteem from your parents, and your parents teach you that you get self-esteem from wealth. It's an important part of the American socialization process. We love you, little Johnny. Now go make money. That's right. And the phrase money tells us how much we are worth, I'm reminded of a that concept uh, first came into being shortly after the Industrial Revolution. Uh. And Jacques Barzin mentions it in his book and says, this is the first time anyone ever said how much you are worth. And then he notes parenthetically, worthiness is not so readily ascertained. No, and we use the phrase, your net worth. Right. Your net worth, like you can boil a person's net worth down into one figure on a balance sheet, your net worth. Isn't that ridiculous? I noticed your ears probably picked up when Jamie mentioned Joseph Campbell and the back of the dollar bill. Well, yes, they did, Steve. You know how much of a fan I am of Joseph Campbell. Right. And that little picture he's referring to on, a, on the dollar bill is of a pyramid with an eye peeking out at the top of it. Isn't that creepy? It's actually, it is. It's actually kind of creepy, that symbol. It always kind of weirded me out. Oh, yeah. And uh, Jamie mentioned uh, death anxiety, and he talked about terror management theory research validating the theory that concerns about mortality heighten efforts to maintain self-esteem. Those concerns are always there. And I know you reacted again when Jamie quoted William James. Well, yes, Steve, I'm a huge William James fan also, and he used one of my favorite James quotes, the skull that grins in at the banquet. It's one a lot of people already know, that the specter of death looms over us all the time, something that people are loath to have pointed out, but James was the one who did it. I actually looked this quote up. Most people just know the, the skull grinning in part. The old man, sick with an insidious internal disease, he may laugh and quaff his wine at first as well as he ever did, but he knows his fate now, for the doctors have revealed it to him, and the knowledge knocks the satisfaction out of all these functions, 
They are partners of death, and the worm is their brother, and they turn to a mere flatness. William James doesn't pull any punches. No. With that quote. That specter of death that looms over us. Yeah, but he's right. People want to forget it, and they want to just order another drink and put it out of their minds, but you can drink all you want and forget all you want. The skull is still grinning in at the banquet, my friend. Oh, yeah. It doesn't go away. Jamie talked about how people maintain self-esteem in the U.S., what makes people feel valuable. And he mentioned clothes, car. Yep. I, I know you love his wonderful phrases. Yeah, he was surprising. Like he said, the urge to splurge. I feel the urge Great to splurge. One. And I felt, reminded me of the Tom Cruise movie. Uh, Top Gun. Top Gun. Top Gun. Where his friend uh, Goose says, I feel the need for speed. It's very closely related to urge to splurge. It's a way of blocking out something else, right? Thinking about something in the moment to forget about the skull grinning in at the banquet, if you will. And he uses it to mean a response in part to manage deeply rooted concerns about death vulnerabilities. And another one he says is dressed to kill. Remember, a lot of people say that. Oh, she's dressed to kill. And when one is all spiffed up and looking their best and wearing their best outfit and reflecting some degree of cultural success one would expect and having the power over life and death person would feel i'm better than you when i look like this oh yeah and i think dressed to kill was a james bond movie but i'm i'm not sure about that yeah but this drive to acquire more stuff can be understood as the drive to obtain symbolic self-esteem which is a primary defense against death anxiety and therefore one can never have enough Jamie quotes Mary Poppins, of all people, and I don't think we quote Mary Poppins enough, Steve, in the modern world. I never have. I never have before, but, but Mary Poppins claims enough is as good as a feast. And Jamie points out after that that many Americans are driven for way more than enough. Yeah, so I did a little, I did a little research, did a little scratching on the back of a napkin. Yeah, this is something. If you spend $1,000 per hour, spending it 24 hours a day, so in other words, you're spending $1,000 an hour even when you're asleep, it would take you 114 years to spend a billion dollars. Wow. Jeff Bezos, founder and CEO of Amazon, has roughly $143 billion. So you can do the math how long it's going to take him to spend all that. He earns, earns in quotation marks, $3,182 per second. Right. Comparison, a content and comparison platform, projects that Bezos will be the world's first trillionaire by 2026. That's trillionaire with a T. Yikes. And the, the company said their projection is based on taking the average percentage of yearly growth over the past five years and applying it to future years. In comparison, shows Bezos' net worth grew an average of 34% over the last five years. So enough is never enough. We're driven for more. And these are our heroes, these billionaires. This explains, to my mind, why radical income or radical economic inequality is not only tolerated, but celebrated in our society. But that's, that's a topic for another day. Yes, it is. But when you look at what radical inequality is doing to our society, and when you look at our 
a reverence for people who've just acquired a lot of money or just inherited a lot of money. Look at Donald Trump, who played a billionaire on television. Right. Odds are he never had a billion dollars, but everyone saw him as this successful businessman, which he wasn't. He was a failure, flying in on his helicopter, striding in slow motion, this game show host yep. in a phony boardroom, which was really a set, and they edited him to make him seem so brilliant, the stable genius he calls himself. These are our heroes, Jeff Bezos and the rest. Jamie actually compares it to a religion. Yeah, once you kill God, then this is what you have. Yeah, when you're in a secular society, if you're really going to try and do that, and people don't, I think, think enough about this when they just wave their hand and say, we don't need it anymore, you've got to have something pretty impressive if it's going to exist in this world and it's going to take the place of what God used to be. Right. I guess you need $3,200 per second. <laughs> yeah. I did a little experiment with my staff and I just was counting that off. Okay, ready? 3200 3200 3200 that's how that's how fast it's accruing i was looking at a stopwatch incredible yeah and so then jamie cites psychological research that shows that pursuing money chasing the almighty dollar as your cousin dave used to say yes he did yep results in lower health and well-being and lower psychological satisfaction now i disagree about physical health most studies show that the more money you have the longer you will live Poverty kills. But I can't disagree with the old adage that money can't buy happiness. No, indeed, Steve. And it might be a uh, arguing a stickler point, but I think that chasing the almighty dollar, it's not really the same as having the almighty dollar. Right. And the, the chasing part can be extremely stressful. Right. And while you're chasing, you may not yet have. So it doesn't really, I think once you have it, you're pretty much guaranteed to live longer because you've got better health care, you eat better food, you sleep more comfortably, and you pretty much have it all going on. Well, thanks to the changes in the tax laws that have occurred over the last few, I don't know how many years, we have a whole generation of billionaires that didn't have to work a single day for their billions. They're just a generation of people that are inheriting incredible wealth. Well, and you said when you were talking about Mr. Bezos, yeah. that how long it's going to take him to spend it. It's actually generations to come aren't going to be able to spend it. True. So like his, his children's 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 children <laughs> will never have to work a day in their life. Maybe not. And in a certain sense, that's immortality, right? Yeah. They're going to have your big picture on the wall somewhere. Say, well, thanks for great, great grandpa Jeff. We all get to sit here and do whatever the hell we want. And uh, we want for nothing. It's American royalty, which the founding fathers were dead set against. Yes, they were. And did not want huge inheritances. They, that's why they had the tax laws. But anyway, we're digressing. Yep. Jamie talks about the difficulty of evaluating one's own value system. Now, that's a tough one. Yeah. Because we call ourselves cultural critics, but we're using the values of our culture to create the criticism. Hmm. Right? Yep. So what can I say? We do what we do. Well, that's true. We are using the culture to talk about the culture, and I know a lot of postmodern ideas point out the flaw of that, but we're going to keep doing it because we think it's valuable. 
we don't have any other options. And we don't, don't have, have anything else to do, way. so that's what we're doing. <laughs> and we don't have any other way to do it. So Jamie so says, Jamie points out Ernest Becker's work helps. Even though Becker was a 20th century American steeped in the Western philosophic and scientific traditions, but I agree his insights help us to understand a lot about ourselves and our shared culture. And Jamie talks about Becker's way of evaluating the success of a culture. Oh, this is great. Yeah. First, are we well-fed? Are we safe? And most people in America are well-fed and safe. Yep. Not all. Not all. But most. But then we get into questions like, to what extent does the culture give people a sense of meaning and the possibility of a sense of value? Right. To what extent, right, to what extent does it do that while minimizing the cost to those outside the system? America has one of the highest rates of depression across the world and other forms of mental illness, which we've talked about in the past. Yes, we have. And then what is the cost to future generations? Are we degrading the environment for the next generation to cope with? And the next generation is very well aware of that fact. Yes, they are. And they're understandably pissed. Yes. And all of this, the symbolic value of money, that's the important idea. Yes. It's not just what money can buy. What money can buy is one issue, but this is what money can afford you, what money can can bestow on you. Yeah. That's what this is about. Yep. He does he point Jamie points out some of the good parts of our society and he lists charity and fairness and equity. And he notes that research shows that attitudes have more power when salient. So charitable behavior gains more importance when we're conscious of it, and it imparts meaning and value. Uh, And there are a variety of efforts to promote what we call community values. And he notes that pursuing monetary goals has also produced many positive advancements, such as medical and technological improvements. Right. He notes that strong religious convictions have perhaps waned over the years, and they need to be replaced with communal convictions to promote a balance, to feel like we're people of value, have a sense of security, and opportunities for growth. Research results in better understanding. Amen to that. All good stuff. And? And it's an important idea. It is an important idea, Steve. Yeah, we've been talking about money, the symbolic power of money, as an important idea. It is indeed. So join us next time. Like us on Facebook. Please recommend us to your friends. You can find us at www.thehubforimportantideas.com. And support us on Patreon. We are 100% listener supported. www.patreon slash the hub important ideas. Thank you for listening to the hub for important ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. Stay safe, everybody. Thanks for listening. <laughs>